Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city from its origins right up to the present day. After 13 episodes, we have finally arrived at the year 886 of the Common Era. This is the most important year in the story of London. Why? Because this is where the story properly begins. Until this moment, we have been dealing with places that were precursors to the London we know today. So, ancient Londinium of the Romans, the capital of the province of Britannia, or mercantile Ludenwick of the Mercians, their vibrant trade port. But in 886, we see the establishment of what would be recognisable to us as the city of London today. It begins here, now, in this year. So how did that exactly come about? And what exactly was going on while it was being built? What was Londonborough? And how was it different? And why are the events leading up to 886 so damn confusing? Welcome then to chapter 14 of the story of London. The chaotic birth of the fortress city. Now, I'm not going to repeat the long, and I mean really long, introduction to the wider geopolitical events that were going on that caused London to be rebuilt. I did that over the last couple of chapters, and I urge folks who haven't listened to them to do so, as honestly, there's a lot of stuff going on across the nation. So I'm just going to offer a brief summary. A few years previously, Alfred of Wessex, the last remaining Saxon king on the island, had won a remarkable victory over the remains of the Viking Great Heathen Army. Their leader, a man called Guthrum, had surrendered, agreed to be baptised, and had accepted the title of King of East Anglia, with the implicit understanding that rather than being on the outside, urinating into the Anglo-Saxon tent, he was now on the inside urinating outwards. Now what followed this, we today can say, saw the creation of a border and clear lines of demarcation and a smooth, steady progression of events seemed to follow. The problem is, real life doesn't work like that. In fact, real life is messy and confusing and generally we only really figure out what's going on a few years down the line. And that was the case back in the 880s. We know that Alfred had won a victory over Guthrum of the Vikings, and that Guthrum had agreed to a truce. And we know a few years later, there is a border between the two men's lands, and a clear aftermath. But between one moment and the other, there's a lot of confusion. Mercia was gone, seemingly. The Vikings had been granted territory, but not all the Vikings were part of this new peace deal. There was actually no clear person in charge, as there seems to be a somewhat confusing post-bellum aftermath, and is now, I'm forced to admit, to something that is beyond anyone's control. There is no consensus, admit scholars, 
as to what exactly happened during the years 880 to 890. There is much here open to speculation. A lot of what I said as a definite fact was certainly fact by 890, but when precisely it happened during the 880s, assuming that it did happen during the 880s, is, I'm afraid, somewhat vague and insubstantial. Scholars disagree with one another over the sequence of events that follows, and had this not involved London, I would have avoided this entire decade completely. Unfortunately, it does involve London, centrally, and thus I'm forced to wade in. So, this is me trying to reconstruct a narrative version of what was going down over that decade. Alright, in 878, Alfred wins his big war with Gunther. By the next year, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle then says that in the aftermath of the victory, in 879, the main Viking force, quote, this year went the army from Chippenham to Cirencester and sat there a year, unquote, which technically means that Gunthram and his defeated troops returned to lick their wounds in Mercia, or right on the Mercy and Wessex border. Now that entry for the year carries on, and as well as telling us there was an eclipse of the sun for an hour sometime during the year, it also tells us that there, quote, assembled a band of pirates, unquote, who, quote, sat at Fulham by the Thames, unquote. Two things to note. First, the exact wording, they're called pirates, which suggests they're more traditional raiders. But secondly, they're at Fulham. Now, this sounds like a new force of Vikings. So, soon after Wessex had faced the onslaught of Guthrum, along comes another bunch of Vikings. No, considering they're at Fulham, that means they could only have come from one of two places. One, they were brand new arrivals from the Scandinavian or the Diaspora, and they sailed up the Thames to Fulham. But that's odd, as we do not read about any one of the, the towns on the Thames being raided, including London. Or two, they were already in England, and they set up in Fulham suggesting that maybe they're a breakaway from Guntham's group in Cirencester. So then we read the next year, so we're up to 880 by now, the Viking army of Guthrum travelled from, quote, Cirencester into East Anglia, where they settled and divided the land, unquote, which seems to be a reference to Guthrum taking control of the region, we assume. And then that year's entry also says, quote, the same year went the army oversea that before had sat at Fulham to Ghent in Frankland, unquote. So now our pirates in Fulham turn out to be a much larger force than we previously thought. They're an army, and thankfully they left. Now for me this suggests that maybe these were holdouts, a faction of Vikings who liked being Viking, who liked to go a Viking, the kind of men who the idea of settling down to farm in East Anglia was not really that appealing. And them moving on could be them getting bored at the new peace deal, or could be Guthrum, possibly moving them on. So they sailed out of the Thames, across the Channel, and over to Ghent, where they could have way more fun. Oh, and by the way, 
This force that sailed from Fulham to the Frankish kingdoms now becomes the dynamic Dysporan Viking army of Europe. Up until now, that title had been held for the last 14 years by the force that attacked England, the great heathen army. But now this force from Fulham was to go on a tear, carving a path of looting and destruction right across Europe. They would join forces with other Viking hordes and then break up and go into separate units, and they had a huge axe-shaped party time. Oddly enough, a few years from now, this force, originally from Fulham, was to besiege Paris and one of its members, a man called Rollo, would not only go on to negotiate a truce with the Frankish authorities, he would then copy Guthrum, who could possibly have been a former leader of Rollo if Rollo had been with this force since the get-go, and anyway, Rollo ended up being granted control of the region that would become later known as Normandy, and yes, one of his descendants would be none other than William the Conqueror. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to London. So, in 879, we know this force leaves Fulham, and we'd like to imagine that tensions decrease dramatically as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle just records that this army was rampaging in Europe, suggesting that Alfred's kingdom was a land of peace, milk and honey. But it clearly wasn't. You get an idea there was stuff going on behind the scenes, as Vikings who were not part of Guthrum's new East Anglia, I suppose you could call them independent contractors, were still causing trouble. We have an account in 882 of Alfred intercepting four Viking ships out at sea, presumably with his own ships. And we read of what sounds like an utterly vicious fight, where every Viking on two of the ships was slaughtered, and the other two ships surrendering, but, quote, the men were severely cut and wounded ere they surrendered. Now, I'm mentioning all of this because in 883, we get a sudden entry about London. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, they meaning the English residents of London, opposed the Viking army at London, and there, by the grace of God, they were very successful after the performance of their vows." Unquote. So, it seems to be saying there was a fight in London. Maybe. The entry seems to be saying that there was an armed force of Vikings in Londonwick, or marching to Londonwick, and that maybe the residents beat them off, or that maybe the residents liberated themselves. Basically, I've seen some historians say that the force who occupied Fulham back in 879, because that was further along the Thames than London, from their point of view, London wasn't raided, but the Vikings were in charge from that date, and 883 is when London liberated itself. Then I've seen other historians say that all London did was declare their allegiance to Alfred, the performance of their vows part, and there wasn't any fighting, just defiance. But the Vikings in charge felt exposed that far away from East Anglia, and so decided to allow London go its own way. But then I've seen other historians say that a force of Vikings had tried to take London in 883, and this was London opposing them. 
and then I've seen several historians say that the events of 883 didn't happen in 883. They happened in 885 or 886, and the scribes who wrote that copy of the Chronicle just got confused with the dates. And why do they believe it could have happened in 885? Oh, that's a good question, because a lot happened in 885, all of which was to have a big impact on London, so hang on to your hats and here we go. Remember that force that had been based in Fulham and then went on an extended road trip into Europe? Well, in 885 they'd been busy raiding up the River Somme, and the year previously had taken the town of Amiens, and we read that in 885 Quote, this year separated into two. One part went east, the other to Rochester. This city they surrounded and wrought another fortress around themselves. The people, however, defended the city until King Alfred came out with his army. Then went the enemy to their ships and they forsook their work. They were provided with horses and soon after, in the same summer, they went over the sea again. Unquote. Wow. So the guys who had maybe been with Guthrum a few years earlier, after carving a bloody path across Europe, now suddenly return back to England and just attack Kent. And not some coastal village in Kent either. They go after the big port and mint of Rochester, and then they lose. It does sound like a vicious fight, and that Alpha drove them off after a battle, or potentially by just being there the whole idea that they forsook their work as opposed they were driven off from their work. But the interesting thing for me is the part where it says they were provided with horses. For me this suggests that Guthrum could have paid them off so they would get on their ships and return back to the continent. And it's worth saying that one version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, something called the E-version, says that the Viking force had come to attack both Kent and East Anglia. So that means they came back to Viking, the Vikings of East Anglia. <laughs> but just as we're getting our heads around this, the entry for 885 goes on to say that Alfred sent or sanctioned, quote, a fleet from Kent into East Anglia, unquote. In short, Alfred seems to have launched a Viking raid upon the Vikings. The account goes that Quote, as soon as they came to Stormouth, they met them sixteen ships of the pirates, and they fought with them, and took all their ships, and slew the men, unquote. Now tell me that doesn't sound like a Viking raid. But if these guys had just sailed over from Amiens and were attacking the former Vikings in East Anglia, that technically means that the men of Kent were Viking the Vikings who were Viking the Vikings of East Anglia. Yes, I'm being pedantic and silly. No, I'm not going to stop. However, 885 is nowhere near finished with this yet, as the entry reads that as the ships of Kent were returning from the successful attack, and I quote, as they returned homeward with their booty, they met a large fleet of pirates who fought with them the same day, but the Danes had the victory, unquote. So this Kentish force, returning home after having Viking the Vikings, who were supposedly Viking the Vikings of Kent, were Vikinged by new Vikings. After then, after all of this, the Chronicle ends the entry for the year 885 with the words, quote, 
and the same year the army in East Anglia break the truce with King Alfred, unquote. Wait a minute. The war started? Is Guthrum and Alfred now back at war with one another? Alas, no one is sure. No, seriously, no one is sure. There are so many theories about this, and each one of these theories are really important because they impact directly on how we explain what's just about to happen to London. And I'm just going to summarise the theories into basically four basic types. Theory one. We take the events as they were written. So an outside force, previously fighting along the River Somme, sail across the channel, attack Kent, then they impose themselves upon Guthrum, perhaps their old companions of his calling in favours. And events follow the way it's described. The army in East Anglia refers to this raiding force, and they broke the truce and caused the fighting this year. Nice, simple, and it's a perfectly acceptable reading. Except, I'm sorry, but I have to say it, the guys over on the Somme had not agreed to a truce with Alfred. The guys who'd retired to East Anglia had. So if someone break the truce, it has to be Guthrum's guys, right? That leads us on to theory two, that in between all this back and forth action, the truce was broken by this third party, causing chaos, and the men of Wessex blamed Guthrum and the East Anglians, and they then retaliated on the retaliation, and this is where everything broke down, and Guthrum and Alfred just basically drove them off, or paid them off with horses, and that's entirely possible. And it's backed up by the fact that the raiders from the Somme had been given horses, presumably from Guthrum, as I doubt the men of Kent would be feeling so generous. By the way, as an aside, it should be said, this is kind of a really big thing. Frankish records say back when they were rampaging over Europe, someone gave these Vikings horses, turning them from shock infantry into shock cavalry. And that was a really bad idea. And the Frankish horses say that people who gave them the horses were locals. But what if they was Guthrum? Anyway, this now comes on to theory three. And that is that Guthrum himself got bored and decided to launch a surprise attack upon Kent. And he called in his old crew who were over in the continent and they all got busy. And Alfred ended the attack, once again spoiling Guthrum's plans and ending the issue. And that is what's been referred to in the chronicle, the breaking of the truce. This would fit a pattern for Guthrum, but there is a fourth theory, however, theory four. The Chronicle got the order wrong, perhaps deliberately. The events start with the men of Kent raiding Essex. That breaks the treaty, Guthrum intervenes by calling in reinforcements, begins sieging Rochester, and then Alfred turns up and that's where the conflict ends as he restores order and the two adversaries sort out their difference. The problem with that theory is that it is the most based on supposition and does contradict the sources. So I'm not saying it's likely, but do keep it in mind. Anyway, by the end of the year or earlier, Guthrum and Alfred were back at war with one another. Bottom line, we know the truce between Alfred and the Vikings had broken down in 885, right? So that now puts Alfred's occupation of London in 886 into context. Either it was during or just after a serious breakdown in the truce between Alfred and the Vikings. Furthermore, it is clear that beyond 885, 
There isn't any descriptions of battle, so there isn't a full-scale war breaking out between the two men. So this leads credence to the idea that while the entry says the truce was broken at the end of the year entry, it chronologically should have been maybe a bit earlier, because it's solved. And I mean, let's face it, if we know Alfred is marching the army of Wessex all the way to Rochester in Kent to lift that siege, that means he would have passed London twice in 885 and 886. So either on the way there or on the way back, which could have happened in 886, we can place Alfred in and around London. And that's important because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says in 886, quote, the same year also King Alfred fortified the city of London and the whole English nation turned to him, except that part which was held captive by the Danes. He then committed the city to the care of Ealdaman Aethered to hold it under him. Unquote. Now, the key to all the debates about Alfred's occupation of London is one single word in that entry, here translated as fortified. The actual word in Old English that was used was gazette, G-E-S-E-T-T-E. And that's a word that has several meanings. It could mean fortified. It could also mean restored. It could also mean occupied. And finally, that word was used to describe besieging. Now, when you think about it, each variation of that single word offers us accounts of what Alfred did when he arrived in London that are very contradictory. If they meant fortified, it means Alfred turned up to build defences or rebuild them. If they meant he turned up to restore, this means that Alfred spent his time repairing things, maybe something old. If they meant occupied, then Alfred was taking a place that wasn't his and claiming it as his own, possibly with violence or a show of force. But if they meant besieged, then Alfred had come to make war, and his control of the city was done at sword point. And for some, this is where they fit in that odd entry for 883. For them, what is described in 883 actually happened in 885 or 886. Alfred turned up and had a fight and took London. Each variation of the meaning of that word gives us a very different picture of the events, really. And it is that ambiguity that has allowed some historians suggest that Alfred's takeover was done after a siege. I'm not too sure on that. I mean, if that was the case, who is he besieging? Vikings? So that means you've got to definitely say that there was a Viking force in control of London at 886. And if that's the case, can I mention an obvious factor no other historian seems to have raised so far? And if they have, I haven't seen it. And that is simply, if there was a siege, what was the Viking defence? Because as far as we can tell, Londonwick only ever had a not very good defensive ditch as its only protection 
And I've never heard of Vikings looking at a piss poor ditch and going, yep, that'll do. So I do not think there were Vikings occupying the town to fight off. But that doesn't mean Alfred's arrival wasn't violent. I think it was violent. But an act of political violence, not physical violence. It was a show of force. So I think he simultaneously occupied and restored and fortified London. And this whole matter, I think, is helped clarified by the monk Asser, who composed Alfred's biography, and he offers us an important clarification. He said that Alfred restored London, using the Latin word restoravit, and he then said he made the place, quote, habitable again, unquote, which brings us back to those old Roman walls. That was the only part that needed to be restored. In short, for me, and I admit I could be wrong here, but Alfred turned up in 886 and didn't fight anyone. There was no siege. Rather, it was a political act that after ending a breakdown in the truce between him and the Vikings, he ordered the town, lock, stock and slave, to relocate behind the old Roman walls and for the walls to be restored and for a defensive ditch to be constructed around them. This was to be London from now on. The surrounding communities could stay where they were, like the Abbey down on Thorn Island, for example. But Alfred was all about making this place fit for a border. It was to become a bastion, a fortress. Now, if you remember, that entry also said that Alfred, quote, then committed the city to the care of Ealdaman Aethelred to hold it under him, unquote. And this is a crucial thing that needs to be explored. We need to ask, who the hell is Ealdaman Aethelred, and why is he in charge of London? Let's be honest, London was a heck of a prize, an important prize, Giving it away like this to an Ilderman who nobody's ever heard of before was suspiciously generous. It must also be said that Aethelred didn't just get London. He got large parts of Gloucester and Worcester as well. These territories are traditionally part of Mercia, and Alfred seems to have taken them over, and now suddenly he's just giving them to a Mercian. Who is this guy? Now, he appears seemingly from nowhere, a new Alfred Yesman, and yet he seems to have been something much more than just that. He was clearly acceptable to the rump of Mercians, there's no hint of anyone rising up against his elevation, and Alfred didn't just appoint him. And he seems to have taken power when Theorulf disappears from the record, and here is the thing. If you ignore Anglo-Saxon sources and look at Welsh sources, it mentions that there was a Mercian king running around after Theowulf and causing merry havoc in the Welsh kingdoms. And later Wessex sources, from much after the time of Alfred, do say this Aethered was seen as a king at the time. So nominally, at least, he is the successor of Theowulf and could be seen as the ruler of the Mercians, even if he wasn't designated king formally. Certainly, he had control over the Mercian armed forces, which was allowing him to operate independently in Wales. Whitehead, 
the specialist historian of Mercian history, suggests it is entirely possible that Aethelred's control of the Mercian armed forces made Alfred's operation in London a joint Mercian-Wessex one, that by doing so, he was adding some kind of air of legitimacy to Alfred's overt takeover. So what are we missing here? Where did this guy come from? Well, we know at some point around now, Ithered marries Alfred's eldest daughter, becoming the king's son-in-law. So while we could say it seems odd, Alfred giving him control of London, it now makes a bit more sense if he's giving him control of London because he's Alfred's new son-in-law. It's a wedding gift. As well as this, remember, Alfred was all about ensuring control. And while he had the military force to protect and reoccupy London, he also wanted the population to be loyal. He probably didn't suspect his new subjects in London would just go off and offer their allegiances to these Danes, but why take the chance? The recent treaties, which may have only just been signed that year, included a provision about former residents of Wessex running off and joining Viking armies. Whatever had just happened in 885, Alfred didn't want to repeat. The locals had been, for over 200 years, the happy residents of the now lost kingdom of Mercia. Wouldn't it just make sense to add an air of legitimacy and to suggest that what was going on was merely a few cosmetic building changes to place a Mercian in charge of the region? A Mercian ruler for a Mercian people. And so in 886, one of the last gaps of Mercia was its final ruler of the city, the appointment of Aethelred of Mercia, who was actually the guy who oversaw the rebuilding of the town behind the walls, the establishment of his new docks, and then becoming part and parcel of the new improved kingdom of Wessex. He was only going to hold the title for his lifetime. Upon his death, it would revert to Alfred or his successors which causes one final sting in this tale. As Alfred Wessex grew in power over the next few decades, as it forged its new Anglo-Saxon identity, it appears that having a Mercian in charge meant London was different. It had its own unique Mercian way of doing things. The reason? Well, Ethelred of Mercia began parceling out land behind the walls to various lords and magnates of England. So the Bishop of London got some, the Bishop of Worcester got some, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they all had parts of the city, and they were not alone. An area within the new city might have been demarcated by a hill, or a stream, or the remains of some Roman ruins. But once it was appropriated to some English lord or bishop, it became a new soak, or territory. Each one of these seemed to quickly gather a church, hastily erected in wood or limestone, and they in time became the focal point of small communities of tradesmen, artificers and others. Around each plot of land allocated over the years arose a sense of community separate from the other plots of land. In this Mercian distribution of territory, the seeds of what was to become the wards of London were born whose influence was to dominate the city for the next 1,000 years. So what was being built? Well, some years earlier, in the late 850s, we know there was some development near the walls. 
The Bishop of Worcester was granted land in London, known locally as the, quote, estate of the descendants of Sjölmund, unquote. This land was located, and I quote, not far from the West Gates, unquote. But since Londonwick didn't have a wall or a gate, that means the Roman walls. So the estate probably lay close, if not immediately next door to Newgate or Ludgate Hill. This estate was apparently thriving, with some kind of successful businesses going on in them, because the grant included profits generated by those traders, which were part and parcel of the land grant, and the, the grant assigned the bishop control over the weights and measurements used to tax those businesses. And we know that around the same period, maybe a bit later, we see building within the parameter of the walls, but down by the riverside, in the region southeast of St. Paul's, where eventually we'd find Bull's Wharf. It seems to have been a beach market designed to cater to traders coming up the river from the Upper Thames region and was still in use during the time of Alfred when he rebuilds everything behind the walls. But beyond this, we must ask the listener to place things in perspective. What Alfred or his mercy and overlord of the city created certainly did not fill the space within the walls with a vast urban sprawl. Far from it, as had been in Roman times, within the walls there was large amounts of green space, and maybe that was used for pasture. Its core development area was a region measuring about 300 metres by 1,000 metres, bordered today by modern landmarks like St Paul's, Cheapside and Old Billingsgate. We see a rough genesis of street patterns emerge, a basic grid, short north-south roads, interspersing longer east-west roads, including what would become Cheapside. We find archaeological evidence of two clusters of construction dating from Alfred's time, or very close to it, one of which would cover the areas where today we find Great Trinity Place, One Poultry and Bow Lane, while the other was in the east, near where today sits Bartolf Lane and Fish Street Hill, and some have suggested this area was developed to restore and rebuild the old bridge across the Thames, but most evidence says it was not fully working for a while. Fundamentally, this rebuilding of London was re revitalising the area behind the walls. And we know he built a road just within the walls from Allgate to Ludgate. And around that central road, we had the grid of streets we've already mentioned, which was intended to facilitate the arrival of goods via his new docks, the wharves of which would be in time called Queen Highs and Billingsgate. 886 then was the named year for the forever change in London. But history is just current affairs with added time, and as we know, nothing is ever done in just one year. Things build up in the years before and the years after. This London was a different beast to what had been before. It was much more ferocious than the timid community of traders. In time, it would become once again the centre of trade in England, but it wasn't now. Now it was to be a fortress. The war, the name given to that seemingly endless conflict with Vikings pouring into the island, it, it was only at an impasse. There were many more battles to come, and London was to find itself now as a crucial front-line position. How crucial? The border established between the Viking territory and Alfred's territory by the Treaty of Wedmore, which for all the claims it was signed just after Alfred won his big victory, may have only been signed in 886, 
just marked what is in effect the jurisdiction of the two territories. It's what they could influence realistically. And indeed, it could be argued that no one really gave much thought to the exact limits of the border, except the church. See, churches were worried. A line on the map, any map, could delineate a change in their parish boundaries, which could drastically alter their revenues. Lines on a map, any map, could be said to be utterly important to any Anglo-Saxon peasant. And to be fair, any Anglo-Saxon warrior. But to Anglo-Saxon churchmen? Oh no, this was important. And so to the Church of St. Paul's, for example, sat behind those newly restored Roman walls, the exact border of where Alfred's jurisdiction ended and Guthrum's jurisdiction supposedly begun was everything. And the Treaty of Wedmore said, the border between the two men was along the Thames and then turned upward at the River Lee. And the River Lee met the Thames at Bow Creek, which today we find in Docklands. In a nutshell, London was located just three miles from the Viking side of the border. Those walls were not for show. This fortress was about to be tested. And we'll leave it there. Thank you for listening. Please follow the link in the description to find a rough copy of the script I used, plus some cool pictures and illustrations. And I'll be back next week for another chapter in the story of London. Mm-hmm.